transformed. We're dealing with three aspects. Eternally, we talked about our spiritual health. And we talked about the idea that we need to make sure that we are uh, sourced in Christ, that we are, have our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We spent three weeks talking about our internal world and how God transforms us physically. We talked about the idea of rest. We talked about the idea of learning to trust God, the idea of taking care of ourselves physically. Uh, we talked about our mental world and how we need to really look at how we think and to think things through, to, to biblically look at how God addresses issues and to think biblically. Uh, last week, we talked about our emotional world, and we talked about the role that emotions play and how that uh, we need to be healthy emotionally, as we just talked about in Sunday school. You know, you only have a certain amount of emotional energy, so you need to, to put some parameters around, some, some boundaries around it. You need to be careful um, with, uh, with the way that you make decisions as far as emotionally driven um, and to really put them through a sieve to see what, what God's word says. We now head into two weeks Easter and then another week. Uh, three more aspects, and those are our eternal world, or our external world. In our external world, we're going to look at three things. This morning, we're going to look at our relationships, because most of us have relational baggage or relational issues that we need to be honest about and, and, and grow and change. Um, next week, we're going to look at our finances, and like I said, we're going to look at um, the issue of how do we biblically deal with this whole issue of being in a society that's, that's really about abundance. Um, you know, and we don't want you to walk away feeling guilty for what you own. We don't want you to walk away feeling like um, everything's all out of whack, although it might be, and you need to fix it. You know, um, that's, that's between you and God. But we're going to look at it honestly. We're going to look at how you see money, because that, that shapes how you spend money and why you acquire money and all those kinds of things. So we're going to talk about that. Um, and then... We're going to have Easter, and then after coming back from Easter, and I don't know, the week of Easter, small groups can meet if you want and just talk or eat or whatever it was you want to do as a small group. Uh, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about your job. Because most people, if you, if you talk about your external world, most of your issues fall into those three categories. People problems, money problems, or job problems. You know, if, I, if all of those were good in your life, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, well, what else is there? Exactly. That's what we're going to talk about, your external world, all right? So this morning we're going to talk about relationships. Um, and so we want to, we want to look at your, your relational world in the context of what does the Bible say and, and where do we go? Relationships are important. You need to understand that. I've got to move this or I'll sit in it, um, which is just fine with me at this point. But <clears throat> um, and look, relationships, here, here's what you need to understand. God created you as a social being. I understand you like your alone time, but you need to know we are social beings. God created it. When God, creates, when God created the world, read Genesis. He goes, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. He comes to one thing and he says, it's not good that man's by himself. The one thing that wasn't good is man was by himself. And so God says, look, in this context, he creates marriage. And he gives them somebody, but the whole idea behind it is we are designed to be social beings. 
We are created to be in context with relationships. So relationships become important. So this morning we want to look at, so what, what is it that, 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 how did this whole thing fall apart? What is it that, gets, that, that, that messes it up? And we go back to Genesis, which I think is so foundational for relationships, where in Genesis you have a perfect world. You have God's created everything perfect. He's now solved the problem that wasn't good. He's got marriage. He's got a man and a woman. He's got them together. They're in fellowship with him. They're spending time every day together. Um, God has set up some boundaries and said, you can eat of everything, but stay away. Don't eat of that tree. Everything else you got, you got wide open to you. And Satan comes in and he, and he tempts Eve and convinces Adam he did the one thing God said don't eat of. And the relationship is affected. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. We're going to lay out a couple principles, and then we're going to uh, help us understand it. So here's what we go. What is it that ruined the relationship? And here's what you start with. Genesis chapter 3, listen to what it says. Um, you got that one up for me? There we go. But the Lord God called to man, and he said, where are you? Now, it's not like God lost his first creation, okay? He's not running around the garden going, oh, no, where are you? I've lost, you, know, you know, why did I come into this room? That's not the concept. The concept is he wants man to understand why, where he is. And notice what he says, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was, what's the word? Afraid. This is interesting. The first time fear is mentioned in the Bible is right here. And it's in context of a relationship. Man is afraid. He's afraid because why? Because now he's going to be exposed. God is going to find out what he did. And so notice what he says. Because of the fear, what does he do? I was naked and I hid. One of the things that, that, that happens in a relationship, when we get afraid that we're going to be exposed, what we do is we hide. We hide. We put distance between us and the person that we don't want to know about that. About that. And that's one of the things that you see in relationship. <clears throat> one of the first things that happens is, because you are afraid of being found out, you put distance between you and that person. Teenagers, listen to me. When you do something wrong and you don't want your parents to find out, we don't want to know what the first thing you do is. You start to put distance between you and them. You start to hide. You know, what do you mean you want to see my phone? Why? What do you mean you have to have my password? Don't you trust me? Parents, here's the answer. No, I don't trust you. That's why I want your password. You go, well, 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 you should just trust me. Trust is earned. Trust is proven. So therefore, give me your password. After we've gone a long time, then I can trust you. But you don't understand. I have rights. No, you don't. My house, my rules. Hey, are you paying for the phone? No. You know, and by the way, let me just, so you have college kids. You understand now that you have to give, the kids have to give permission for you to see their grades? 
And I looked at it and just said, mm, you want any help from me? You better put my name on it. You know? You go, well, didn't your kids pay your own, their own way? Yep. But I still had access. You know, I had access because I was helping them in other ways. You know? I mean, it, it just comes down to this issue of, you see, when they're in the garden and they're not eating of the tree, they don't, they're, they're, everything's fine. But the second you start to get afraid and fear and put some distance between that relationship, that's one of the things that you know right off the bat. That ought to be a big clue. Kids, if you're trying to hide stuff from mom and dad, that should be a big clue. You're trying to hide stuff from your spouse, that would be a big clue. That there's something going on. You're trying to keep that away from your friend, it ought to be, it ought to be a clue that the relationship is going to pay a price for that. The other thing you see is this. Um, I'm, going to jump at the, I'm going to jump at the next one. Uh, but, by the way, you know how they responded, of course. They felt ashamed, so they covered up, and they tried to hide, and they tried to smooth it all over, and that, that's what happened. Um, but all of a sudden, notice what it says. Um, go to the next, next one on there. I'm going to skip the third one, but go to the next one. The man said to the woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. He starts blaming Eve. By the way, you need to read your Bible very carefully. We like this idea of, of dumping all this on the woman, the woman, the woman. You need to read your Bible very carefully. Because it says when Satan tempted them, there is a, there, there is a plural pronouns are used. Adam was right there too. He didn't speak up. He kept his mouth shut. And so it was Eve who had the conversation with Satan, but it was Adam who was standing right there. It isn't like she came running to Adam and went, oh, Adam, you've got to follow my lead here. No. It said, but so he says, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to one, what have you done? The serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, all of a sudden now it's blame shifting. And that's what happens in a relationship. When all of a sudden you're afraid you're going to be found out, what do you start doing? You start shifting blame to everybody else. It's everybody else's fault. There's no ownership on your end of it. You know, the last argument you had. Wasn't there somebody else to blame? You know. And so that, that, it goes easy that way. And then notice what happened. How do you... <laughs> the question is, so, so, so what, where did Adam and Eve go wrong? Last week I said something, and some of you caught it, and some of you didn't, and some of you wondered about it, and some of you didn't pass it all, but I talked about the antidote to fear is love. And I said, that's really hard to flesh out. Well, we're going to flesh it out this morning and help you understand that. If you're afraid, it's a love problem. Okay? It's a love problem. Listen to First John. Yeah, skip the next passage and go to that First that John one, guys. Um, what do we got? There, there you go. And so we know that and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. So we have confidence on the day of judgment in this world that we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect or complete or mature in love. Notice what he says, there is no fear in love. Love drives out fear. 
Okay? So you're going, okay, I don't see how those two are connected at all. So let me give you the short of it, and then we'll go into it. Adam and Eve questioned God's love for them. You see, God had said, everything here, eat of, except that one tree right there. Don't eat of that one. Satan came along, and basically, here was Satan's argument. God doesn't really love you. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. And God's holding something back from you. God doesn't really care about you. You need to care more about you than God cares about you. You need to eat that tree so you can be just like God. Don't love God, love you. And what happens? They eat and they're afraid. Had they said, no, God loves us completely. God understands what's best for us. God has told us no for a reason. And we trust God. We love God. We're going to follow God. It never would have happened. But because they questioned God's love and because they questioned what God was doing in their life, the next thing you know, it sent them down, down a path. So here's, here's how we do, here, here's what will help you in this issue in relationship. And then we're going, to, we're going to apply it to your relationship. So here's the first principle. It's this. Love God with your whole heart. Okay? There's the first thing. Love God with your whole heart. Uh, you really want to deal with relationships like they have? Learn to love God with your whole heart. 1 John 4, verse 12. Here's what it says. <coughs> um, go to the next one, guys. Yep, there we go. Uh, we love, or 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, talking relationships, and hates a brother or sister, is what? Liar. Get this. You can't, can't hate another Christian and love God. Period. As the Bible says. You go, well, you don't understand what that person did to me. If you hate a brother or sister, and you claim to love God, you're lying. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to other people, you're lying to God. You don't love God. Why? Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen can't love a God whom they haven't seen. They're in Christ. They are, you have to love them because they are a brother or sister in Christ. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God, it's a command, it's not an option, Anyone who loves God must also love the brother or sister of Christ. You go, but they're not loving. Doesn't matter. But they're obnoxious. Doesn't matter. We love. We love. You go, yeah, but you don't. What, are you driving yourself from your emotions or are you driving yourself from the truth of God's word? Sometimes you have to go back to truth and let truth govern your emotions. And he says... Anyone who loves God must love his brother or sister Christ. So you and I as believers, we don't have an option to not help heal broken relationships. It is not an option for us. It is a mandate. We have to do it. They're brother or sister in Christ. We've got we, we to do our best to make it, to fix it. And even if they don't want to fix it, I still have to love them. Okay? So, let's walk it through. 
How can I, you go, Pastor, how in the world can I love that person? I, you don't understand what they did. Okay, here's what you have to do. You have to understand, first of all, how God loves you. Okay? That's where it starts. And I maintain that most of us don't really understand how God actually loves us. You, if you were with us last year, we spent about eight months on the book of Ephesians, and we spent a whole bunch of time in the first three chapters, which talks about the fact that you are in Christ. That God loved you, adopted you, placed you in Christ. That is huge. So from a perspective of how God looks at you, you have to understand you are accepted. Literally, the idea on Ephesians was you were accepted in the loving. God accepted you, brought you into his family, made you one of his own. He does that to every single believer. So first of all, you were accepted. As you were. You have to clean yourself up. You just came as you were, and he took you as you were. Second thing, he loved you unconditionally. Some of you really need to wrestle with this because you came out of faith traditions that taught something other than this. So I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. There's nothing you can do today that will make God love you more or less than he does right now. Let me say it again. There's nothing you can do today, tomorrow, next week, anytime that is going to make God love you more or love you less. Period. And some of you are striving so hard to think, oh no, this happened to me because God didn't love me. Because I hurt God this week and I did this and I shouldn't. So now God's getting me. The love for God, God is love. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or love you less. Listen to Isaiah. Um, is that Isaiah or Job? Um, uh, Isaiah, yeah. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In other words, nothing. It's an, it's, it's an unfailing love. It's an unconditional love for you. And when God loved you and you put your faith and trust in him, he forgave you. You get that? Listen to Romans 8. Here's what Romans 8, 1 says. It just starts off the whole thing. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That doesn't condemn you. That was done at the cross. Your sins were put on Christ at the cross. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, and then some of you, you're like, well, God's going to get me if I get out of line. No, God's not going to. God may discipline you just like when your kids get out of line. You discipline them not because you hate them, but because you want what's best for them to bring them back in line. You know, and God says, look, there's no condemnation to you. You've been put in Christ. I I don't condemn you. I don't look at you differently. I I embrace you as my child. That's how he loves you. And then the last thing is this. He talks about this idea that you are valuable. Now, why does something have value? Have you ever thought about this? There are two things that determine value. The first thing is... What did you pay for it? If I come in here and I show you a coin and I say, I bought this coin for $2,000, 
bring a nickel in here and say, I paid $2,000 for this. What's the value of that nickel? It's $2,000. Now, if I come up and say, I want to sell this nickel, and I paid $2,000 for it, and you say, I'll give you a nickel, what's the value of it now when you buy it? It's a nickel. The value is determined by what you pay for it. You know, I have people all the time, oh, you know, I bought this as an investment, and I could sell this for, for you know, $4,000. No, you can't. You can only sell it for who is standing there that will give you the money for the item that you're letting go of. That's how you get a good deal sometimes, is people go, i got to get rid of it today. And you go, here's a nickel. And they go, okay, it's worth $4,000. Well, you see anybody willing to pay you $4,000? Because here's a nickel. It's worth whatever, you put, whatever value somebody is willing to pay for it. That's what makes something valuable. You know what else makes it valuable? Who owns it? If I bring an old motorcycle up here, and I say, hey, I want to sell this old motorcycle. And you go, well, you know, I know that motorcycle. It's worth X number of dollars. I'll give you X number of dollars for it. I go, yeah. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. James Dean owned this motorcycle. Kids are going, who's James Dean? Oh, he's a sausage guy. <laughs> um, Google it, kids. Uh, Google it. Um, all of a sudden, now it has value, doesn't it? Because of who owned it. All right, so think about this for a minute. What was paid for you? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. God the Father left heaven, spent 33 years here to die on a cross for your sin, and paid with his life. How valuable are you? Depends on what was paid for you. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. Which tells me what? Who owns me? Who owns me? God. What did he pay for it, for me? His life. How valuable am I? Pretty valuable. Pretty valuable. It's not based on what I do. It's based on what he did. So when I understand that, when I understand that God loves me in those kinds of ways, he accepts me, he forgives me, he unconditionally loves me, he sees me as a person of value, then guess what? I am told to go and love others. How do I love them? In that way. That person who's a burr in your saddle right now, God loves them. You're not going to see an eyeball this week that Jesus Christ does not love. That Jesus Christ is not trying to reach. You're not going to run across anybody in here who's not, anybody this week who's not of value to God. You're not going to run across anybody who's not important to him. And if you run across a brother or sister in Christ, well, that's a whole different ballgame. Because they are owned by the Creator. And they have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, if you love God, you, you don't have an option other than to love and care for other people. You accept them. You love them. You forgive them. You value them. And that becomes very, very important for us. Um, John 13 says it this way. Listen to this passage. A new commandment I give you, 
love one another. How do we love other people as I have loved you? So you must love one another. By this, by the way, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. We live in a world that's surrounded by a lot of hate. You understand that our love one for another can be probably one of the most powerful messages we can send into a lost world. Um, I wish, I just saw it, I don't know when I saw it, maybe this morning, maybe last night, somebody posted, I don't know, I see, you know, so many things I see posted. Um, it was of two, I don't know, I don't know if they were gazelles or something or other, and they were fighting in a field together, and there were a couple standing off on the side watching them. If I can find the post, maybe I'll try to, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I don't like linking the post because when you say that you link to something, then they say you like it, and the next thing you know, there's all kinds of things that I like that I really didn't like, and anyway, so, but anyway, so what's happened is these two things, and a lion comes out of the background, and the ones that are standing aside watching these two fight, and they take off running, but the other two are so engaged fighting each other, they don't see it until the lion is right on them, and eats one of them, because they were fighting each other, and I thought, you know what, that is so applicable to us. We start fighting among ourselves, and then I say, you know, Satan comes in, and he's devouring, he's eating one of us, because we were so focused on each other instead of the enemy, the next thing you know, we're toast. And, if that, you know, and, and what he's saying is, look, you love one another, so that doesn't happen. You go out into the world so that they see, you know, that's one of the things that I think people at Hornick were kind of surprised at, was how well we worked together and how much we liked each other. How much fun we could have? The world notices. They notice, they notice whether or not you care. And so as we go into the world, I think that's how we, we, we take our message to the world. So how does that apply for us? Um, let's talk about some really, really specific stuff this morning. Um, here's where I am in my journey. Um, this past year, I've really been confronted with this idea of looking at Jesus in regards to relationship and looking at how Jesus handled specific types of situations and people in relationship. And one of the things that has really hit home to me and is something I'm working on is this idea of my relationships of balancing grace and truth. The thing said of Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth. And those are like two extremes. Um, on one hand, it's, it's very solid and firm, and on the other hand, it's very tenderhearted. And I've looked at my life and said, you know, I, I grew up in a faith tradition, a faith background that was strong on truth, and I'm so thankful for it. I mean, we, it went overboard on truth. I mean, it was, it was, I had a good, solid theological background and, and, and everything else. But I have to say, the group and the circle that I was in, we weren't, weren't really good on the grace part. Oh, we were really good on the truth part. And I have watched other people, they have embraced the grace aspect of it, and it's all about Jesus' love, and Jesus is this, and Jesus is that, and they ignore completely the truth part of it, so they adapt to whatever the world needs to adapt to, so they can say we're people of love and we're people of grace. And I'm like, I don't want to be on that end of it, but it's as bad to be on this end of it as it is to be on that end of it. And when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was full of both. He brought both of them together. So what I have been, what I have been challenged with, what I've been looking at, what I've been working into my life is this. I've looked at how Jesus handled specific relationships. 
And I've tried to adapt my method to handling those circumstances that way. So let me give you an example. When Jesus was dealing with people who were proud and arrogant, he was kind of in your face. Um, You see very little grace, honestly. You see a lot of, I'm confronting your actions. I don't care about what you say. Here's what you're doing. So when he comes to the Pharisees and people who were proud because we're doing it right and you're doing it wrong, he confronts them with truth. And he is very forceful in confronting them with truth. So as I deal with people who are aggressive with their positions and proud and arrogant, I I try to deal with them just pretty bluntly, in all honesty, because that's the way Jesus did. On the other hand, when Jesus deals with people who are um, broken, there's an incredible amount of grace. The woman at the well. He knows what she's done. She's got five husbands. The person she lived with now and she's not married to. And he's looking at her and he goes, uh, let's talk about water. What do you mean let's talk about water? We're standing at a well. Yeah, I know. You ever thought about water that will satisfy forever? What are you talking about? This incredible, tender, compassionate Jesus. And by the way, he deals with truth because at the end he tells her, go and sin no more. You know, I'm glad that you've embraced me now. Go back and change. Be transformed. Be different. Let everybody know. But there's an incredible compassion here of grace and love and mercy and tenderness. And I love the story that brings two of these together. The woman caught in adultery. You have the proud people here, and you have the broken person here. And they come to him, and read the, read the story carefully. It says, she was caught in the act. That means that there were two people involved, but they only brought the woman because that was the culture. They had a double standard. And they bring the woman, and they say, you tell us what we ought to do with her. Saying, you know, you know we're supposed to stone her, Right? Who in here, are you really the person of truth that you say you are? And they're arrogant, and they're proud, and I love Jesus' response. What does he do? He just keeps writing in the sand. He's not even paying attention to them. And I imagine they're getting a little perturbed at this point. You know, come on, Jesus, you know, look, we got her. She's right here. We caught her. Now, come on, tell us what to do. Come on, we're ready. We're ready. I'm picking out rocks. Come on, come on. And Jesus just looks up, and he goes... Whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. I mean, picture this now. He's he's just sitting there doing this. I don't know what he's writing. I don't know. He could be writing out the commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. (laughs) You know, he'd be drawing smiley faces for all I know. I don't know what he's doing. But they're wanting his attention. They're proud. They're arrogant. Why aren't you paying attention to us? What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? And he goes... I don't even know that he looked up. I can't remember the, I haven't looked at the story recently, but it's like, whoever's without sin, throw it first. 
And it says they started leaving from the oldest to the youngest. And I imagine that, you know, you got some guy standing there going, okay, well, I'll just, wait a minute. Fred, where are you going? George, George, George is going, too. Oh, Tommy left. Whoa. Tommy, if, if Tommy left, let me tell you something. Tommy was like the best guy I know. And if Tommy left, uh, there's no way I'm standing. I'm, Tommy, I'm going with you. Hold up. And the next thing you know, finally they're all gone. And Jesus is still playing around in the sand. And he looks at the woman and he goes, Where's everybody that's accusing me? I don't either go and sin no more. Incredible grace and compassion. Does he deal with truth? Yes. Does he deal with it? And I look at my life and I go, you know what? I want to be that person. I want to be that person that in my relationships, I handle the things the way Jesus handled them. That I, I'm not that judgmental, harsh, critical, proud, egotistical kind of person. But yet, at the same time, when I'm confronted with those people, I don't back down. And I challenge them on their actions. And I sit there and go, yeah, you talk about this, but what about this? You know, Jesus looked at him. He said, you, you tied the mint and the aniseed. Have you ever seen a sesame seed on a sesame seed bun? It's smaller than that. And when these people would harvest, they would take out a tenth of it, and they would say, okay, that tenth, that goes to the temple. We're going to go take that to the temple. Let's go take that to the temple. They, they were so minute in that stuff. And Jesus says, you, you, you do that and you do well. You're trying to do what's right. That's awesome. But stuff like mercy and grace and love, you, you, you've thrown that out the window. You've omitted the weightier mantle, things that are far more important than sesame seeds. And I'm going to challenge you. I want to challenge us that in those relationships that we're struggling with, that we step back and we ask ourselves, do I deal with that with grace and truth? Um, let me say this, okay? because this is something I'm very cautious about. Be very careful in the way that you post your political views. You see, in my world, I realize that I have a lot of Facebook friends that are lost. And I have a lot of Facebook friends that are in the LGBT community. And I have Facebook friends that have had abortions. I want to make sure that whatever I post considers those people as well. You saying you don't stand for truth? No, I'm saying I stand for truth. You know, I've, I've had people say, you know, well, why don't you, why don't you just take, take a Sunday and preach against abortion and tell everybody what's wrong? You, you want to know if I get to a passage, if we're preaching through the book of Psalm, and we get to Psalm 139, we'll talk about it. You know why I don't do that? Do I think abortion's wrong? Yes, I do. But I also know that on any given Sunday, there are people in here that either had an abortion or advised somebody that had an abortion or maybe helped somebody go get an abortion. And that every day Satan beats them up with it because they have since come to the realization that that was wrong and it breaks their heart and they live with the guilt of it every single day. And I don't want them to walk into this place and feel more guilt 
for something God has already forgiven them for. I want to deal with it gracefully, but I want to deal with truth. Do I think that divorce is wrong? Yes, I do. I think divorce mars a perfect picture that God has established in marriage. But I also realize that divorce happens and that people struggle with it and there are people who beat themselves up over divorce. So I want to be very cautious about how I handle that. Grace, truth. Is this, is this making sense? I'm not, saying you, I'm not saying we back away from it, but I'm saying we have to remember in the relationship the way you talk to people. You have to think in those terms of, you know what, what if I was in their situation? Can I give them value even though I disagree with them? Yes, I can. Okay. Do I have to agree with them? No. Will I ever agree with them? No. Will we ever find common ground? No. Because truth is truth. Doesn't waver, doesn't change. But can I show them grace? And can I show them love? Can I show them acceptance? And can I show them value? Yes, I can. I can. You go, you're saying I have to accept somebody who does that? I'm saying that you accept somebody who is different than you are. And I do it every single day in this thing called marriage because my wife does not agree with me on everything. But I love her and I accept her and I value her and I treasure her and we agree to disagree. You know? And, and I'm saying, so, so in so many ways, that's why Jesus says, that's, that's why it's so clear. If you're going to love God, you got to love brothers and sisters in Christ. You have to love the people that God loves. And God loves them. Um, go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. But they're not changing. It's patient. Kind. All those things that 1 Corinthians. It hopes all things. It hopes for the best. It believes that God can reach them. It has confidence to hang in there never giving up. Don't give up on those people that I want to reach for Christ. Um, what do you do? You extend grace the way God extended grace to you. You express faith. The person has worth and value, even though you may not like what they do or what they proclaim to do. You expect the best. You endure the worst. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Hurt people hurt people. When people are hurting, they tend to lash out. And you have a choice. You go in with love or you walk away. Um, I, the story that always sticks with me is the little boy and his dog. Dog ran out in the road, got hit by a car. Little boy wanted to rescue his dog, so he runs out to the street. He picks up the dog, and the first thing the dog does is bite him. Throws the dog down. I've got a choice to make. Do I walk away? Does the dog hurt me? Do I go in again realize I'm probably going to get bit, but I've got to get the dog to the vet? What call would you make, animal people? <clears throat> I know you're not going to, some of you are going to make you mad, but you just, biblical thinking, 
People are more important than animals. I didn't say animals aren't important. I just said uh, people are more important than animals. I understand for some of you that's a stretch, okay? But when God created Adam and he showed him all of the animals, and God said there was not a helper suitable for him, so God created for Adam a human being to take the place of the animals that were not sufficient because the people were more important than the animals. I know I've ruined your theology, but get over it. (laughs) Truth is truth, okay? I'm not saying animals are not important. I mean, oh man, I have to go find another church. Um, You know, (laughs) it's like, oh, pastor started preaching heresy, said the animals weren't important. So a bunch of farmers. Um, No, I... It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, okay, people, if you will do it for an animal, what about you? And by the way, this was an argument God used in the book of Jonah. When Jonah said, God, you said you were going to wipe them out. You said you were going to judge them. God, you, you, you know what those people did. You need to go get even the truth said. And you made me go in and preach that you were going to destroy it if they didn't repent. And I know they repented, but you still need to wipe them out because all the things that they did to my people... And he's mad. And he's hopping mad and he's sitting under a tree and God takes this little bush, the, the, the thing over top of him and then takes it away in a day and he's mad at God. And God says, the book of Jonah ends with God saying this, Jonah, if you don't care about the people, think all the animals that I would have killed when I destroyed the city. Since you care more about animals than people, Jonah, I care about those people. But I would have wiped out a bunch of animals too, so maybe that'll help you realize I probably shouldn't have done it. I'm going to give them another chance. Grace and mercy. And I, I just want to challenge you with this idea. So as we, as we, and by the way, I also have to say this, okay? This is a position of this church. This is a personal position as well. I'm not staying. You stay in a situation that is abusive. It has always been our policy as a church, as a board, for me personal, that if somebody's in an unsafe environment, we get them in a safe place. Always. Whether I'm dealing with kids, whether I'm dealing with adults, if I feel the situation is unsafe or the person is unsafe, we get them into a safe environment. I'm not talking about sitting in there and going, you know, that, that, that's, that's nonsense. Okay? Because you have value and worth and all of that and so we want to make sure that that you're safe and we're getting ready to do a self-defense class to help keep you safe okay so i I want you to understand that that, that's not what i'm talking about but what i am saying is that we respond in a way that honors god so i end this morning with this we're reminded that relationships are easily hurt by our self-imposed fears in order to honor god we've got to understand the ways that god loved us we try to emulate God's love in Christ's example and develop relationships that reflect Christ. Our goal should be to show the love of Christ as we become people of grace and truth in a world that is self-centered and based on lies. Lord, help us. We've all got relationship baggage. We've always we've all got stuff. 
And Lord, there's always those people that come into our lives that uh, push all of our buttons and flip all the switches. So Lord, this week, as we run into those people and we deal with those people, may we look at them in a different way. Lord, for those that have relationships that have been hurt and severed, may they reach out and take the high road and take a step to be a hero in trying, Lord, to restore it to what it should be. Lord, for those who have been hurt, Lord, would you heal those hurts and help them to go forward and not let that hurt become their future. May you use us, Lord. Thanks for loving us. Help us to love others as you have loved us. These things we ask in your name. Amen.